Um, it is so good to be back in our space. I really enjoyed um, the BSU. Truthfully, I thought it was a I thought it was a good space, um, and it was good for our first week back too. So, um, but yeah, it feels good to be back in this space. Um, as I often start, and I, I I always wonder what am I going to say, and I never know until I get up here. Um, and then what I want to say again is like, man, there's a lot of things that you can be doing on a Wednesday night. I know homework is a part of that. I know friendships is a part of that. Um, I know that there's just a lot of things that demand your attention. And so you know that I love to honor y'all by just saying thank you for being here. Thank you for being uh, at RUF or what we've come to just accept Rough, <laughs> right? For those who like maybe never heard of it or something like, yeah, man, Rough's pretty cool. Uh, we, we've embraced it. I think it's funny. Um, and life is rough. So you can laugh at that. That's pretty. Thank you. Thank you. That's our sweatshirt. I know. May not do this for much longer. Okay. <laughs> so uh, as, a, as a brief reminder, last semester, uh, we, we spent some time in, in the book of John, and we were looking at uh, the big question, who is Jesus? Now, we're not straying too far from that because a lot of the parables, they actually, they actually do answer who is Jesus, but they answer more than that. So it's, like, it's almost like we're going to hit that same, that same strand and that same question, and we will tonight. But it will continue to flesh itself out. So I thought it would be a natural thing. Talk about the king. Last semester, we do have a king. There's a king of this universe who reveals himself um, in the person of Jesus. And he brings a kingdom. And so I wanted to look at this semester. What does the kingdom even look like? Uh, But before we get to that, um, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 or open it uh, on your phone. Um, I'll have it up here as well. One of the key things I want you all to see um, is that uh, we try to be faithful to the text. Uh, we see that, uh, uh, that the Word of God is that. It is God's very Word to His people. Um, and so I, I don't want you to be like, what is He even saying up there? I want you to see that I'm getting it from the text. So to orient us to our text this evening, uh, I want, there's, a, there's a phrase I usually say, and it's context is king. Um, there's a reason why I say that, because knowing and understanding where we're at in the story enables us to be good readers of the text, right? One of the reasons, key reasons we don't go to the Bible is because it's old, it's ancient, it's hard to read, it's hard to understand. Well, one of the things I want to do is teach you the Bible um, and teach you about God's grace and teach you about Jesus, but I want to teach you to be good readers of the text. But also, uh, I want you to be a good interpreter of the text. And so the logic follows that if we're able to properly interpret the text— within its context, then we are able to responsibly apply the text to our real-world lived experience that we live day in and day out. Therefore, the scriptures begin to transform. They transform to this old, useless, irrelevant book that is full of a bunch of rules and regulations that I don't care nothing about, to God's holy, magnificent Word, living and active, that cuts to the very core of who we are. And not only that, it invites us into a cosmic story, enabling us to understand questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Why do we experience such pain and suffering in this world? What is the point? And what is being done about it? With that said, uh, it's only proper, right, to kind of contextualize our passage this evening. So in the chapter the seventh chapter of the book of Luke, what we've seen so far is Jesus has healed a centurion's very sick servant. 
What is a centurion? A centurion is a high-ranking Roman officer in charge of, you guessed it, 100 men. But guess what? The centurion is also, he's not Jewish, right? The Messiah was really for the Jews. And so it's interesting that the text tells us that he is a Gentile in whom Jesus commends. He commends his faith. Because in that story, he says, I am a man too who is given authority. So whenever I tell a man to go, they go and come, they come. And I know that you're a man of authority. So if you say for it to be done, it will be done. And God says, this is incredible faith from a Gentile, foreshadowing the reality that the Gentiles will ultimately be the time that Jesus will go to the cross because he came for the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus has raised a widow's son from death to life. The son was being carried out. Uh, on a briar, and, and that's kind of their open casket, so to speak. And he's being carried to his burial place. And Jesus, not concerned about cere- uh, ceremonial uncleanness, which was an extreme uh, thing that they worried about, especially the Jews, right? He comes up and he gets near this dead person. If you touch a dead person, you would be ceremonially unclean. And whenever he touches his body, not only does Jesus not become unclean, the person raises from the dead. And after this, as you can imagine, if you let's seriously imagine you witnessing something like this on the ground, fear sees the people. They grip their minds and their hearts. And people are witnessing what is happening day in and day out. And they conclude this. They say, a prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. But lastly, we get John the Baptist testimony of Jesus, and that leads to a division with the people. On the one hand, there are people being baptized by John the Baptist, which is a baptism of repentance. And they are declaring that God is just, that he is, he is giving us an opportunity to repent through John the Baptist, who is a prophet, to prepare the way for the true Messiah, God's true prophet to come and to bring salvation to the world. And they declare he's just. And then on the other hand, you have the Pharisees or the lawyers or the scribes. Think of these people as like the religious hierarchy. They had a lot of influence in society. They, uh, they were the ones who read the Torah out loud, and they're the ones who exegeted it, explained it, kind of like a preacher today. They're very revered, but they ultimately rejected the purpose of God for themselves because they didn't want anything to do with the baptism of John. Why is this important? Well, I want to give you this context because it is precisely at this point where you have both, where you have people seeing that John the Baptist is preparing the way for the true Messiah, the Son of God, taking on flesh to reconcile man back to God because of our sin. But you also have the rejection and clear opposition of Jesus. And it's in that context whenever Jesus changes the way he starts to preach and teach. Both and. You have people coming to Jesus, you have people rejecting him, and it's in this tension that Jesus begins to speak in parables. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 7, um, verses 36 through 50. Um, Before I do, allow me to pray, and I'll pray after as well. Um, I just feel like we need prayer. I need prayer, and I, uh, yeah, just pray that the Lord shows up. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we, uh, we come to you asking for you to open up the eyes of our hearts. Lord, would you unveil um, this deep darkness that sin corrodes our ability to see the things that you have called us to see. But it is through your word, it is through the power of your spirit that we, we see your kingdom. Uh, Lord, no man can boast before you. So it doesn't come by reason or logic. It comes uh, by your grace and it comes through your 
revelation, your unveiling of truth. So, Lord, I do pray uh, that you would reveal truth to us as we read your word, as we do seek to understand more about who we are and who you are and what our story ultimately is. Lord, you do promise in your word where there are two or more gathered in your name that you will be present among them. And I rest and lean on that promise now. Lord, we pray this in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I'm probably going to have to do two, right? Okay, just trying to make sure. What's the verse? Get up and take up your bed. Okay. Um, All right, starting in verse 36, this is the word of the Lord. This is the wrong text. Okay, so I was like, that's unhelpful. Um, All right, so starting in verse 36, um, this is the word of the Lord. Going to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair that is on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet. He would have known who and what sort of woman that this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Well, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for which he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you have judged correctly or rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, thank you for your word uh, here in Luke chapter 7. Lord, allow um, the meditations of our hearts and, the, and, and my words to be pleasing to you. Uh, Lord, and I do pray uh, that you wouldn't allow your word to go out and return empty. Uh, Father, we need you. We need your spirit. We just pray that you'd be present with us now. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you to do something fun. Imagine you're back in high school. <laughs> I was hoping that was going to be the reaction. All right, imagine you're back in high school. Now, I want you to imagine that, my, that high school mindset because it won't work for you today. You're too smart, right? And you get one of those messages, emails, texts, something like that. It says something along the lines of this. Congratulations, you are the lucky winner of a brand new iPhone or an all-inclusive Hawaii vacation or 
$5,000 cash prize, right? Your heart's racing. You feel a little cynical, a little doubtful about it, but then always, like, you always see something that makes the possibility of actually winning it more plausible. Like, oh, your name or your number or email was chosen in a raffle that you signed up for three weeks ago. You think to yourself, oh, yeah. I remember signing up for that. This must be real. This is not a hoax. I know this is real. I signed up for that. And then you call your mom and your dad with excitement in your voice and you explain to them what happened and they graciously reveal reality back to us by something like, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But you continue to provide evidence for the authenticity, but I signed up for that raffle. I remember three weeks ago, it's legit. But then our parents dig in a little bit more to reorient us back to reality by asking, are you sure that you even signed up for anything? This sounds too good to be true. And a last-ditch effort, and your confidence is waning a little bit, you plead, it has to be true. I've already imagined myself with it, right? And then our parents recreate reality for us clearly by saying, this is a scam, do not respond, <laughs> right? And now in our sadness and disappointment, and in this dream that has now disappeared, our hearts often grow more and more skeptical of really good news that has the potential to change our lives. Is it just me or, or has any of you experienced something like this? Like I have, and, we've, and, and I felt disillusioned by something that was too good to be true, which, left, which le- leaves me and us, I'm sure, more cynical and skeptical about good news in general because we feel like, ah, oh, it's probably not true. I'm going to imagine myself with it. I'm going to imagine all the sacrifices that I make to get something, and then it'll just be taken away. It leaves us on guard, doesn't it? It leaves us untrusting. It leaves us with that attitude of, I will never be fooled again. Or never wanting to get our hopes up because they ultimately will always get crushed. It leaves us weary. It leaves us skeptical. It leaves us cynical of the world that we live in. In a similar way in our text this evening, we are presented with really good news about how Jesus has come to bring forgiveness and reconciliation to everyone who sins is that Christian word of everyone who hit, who misses the mark, right? Think about that word sin actually comes from uh, an archery, uh, like, like in, that, in that realm of, of an archer shooting a target and missing the mark. And according to God's law, right, we have God's law. According to that, according to the Bible, we all miss God's mark, right? We all fail to glorify God. We all fail to image him perfectly, And like the Pharisee, we can be cynical or skeptical about this news, about this news that it's freely offered forgiveness and reconciliation. So the question I want to pose is one that we've continued to do, which is, who is this Jesus anyway? Because realistically, I said context is king, all the way from chapter 7, the question in those 50 verses is, who is this Jesus? And so I adopted that question, and so we're going to look at three scenes because we start with the question, so we're going to look at three scenes and then answer the question. Scene one, Jesus reveals our heart. Scene two, Jesus reorients our heart. And, Jesus, and then scene three, Jesus recreates our heart. Again, looking at scene one, Jesus reveals our heart. In context, we know that Jesus is seen as a rabbi or a teacher who is preaching and teaching and performing miracles, etc. So in verse 36, whenever it says that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. This is really important. There's actually a lot packed into this. So allow me to, to gather your imaginations by painting a picture. But to do that, you have to know about some of the cultural realities that will enable us to, ha- to understand what's happening. 
In the Middle East, it was customary whenever a, a rabbi was traveling in town and they were preaching publicly, they would have a banquet and they would share a meal. So back in that day, right, whenever somebody would come into town, they would invite them over and entertain, and they would all have discussion about some of the things that he was preaching about. A lot of the times it was about theology and about the Bible, right? And so, and we know it's a banquet because of that word reclining at table, okay? And what that means is it's a meal indoors, it's a banquet, but you know what else it means? And this is important actually to the text because it tells us why the woman just comes in kind of barging in. In this context of a banquet, reclining at table, it was known in that culture that people, people that even uninvited guests can just come and go as they please. And they can listen in to the teachers and, and to the preachers. And so, uh, so what would the person, well, let's say a servant, what would a servant see or what would the woman that we're going to get to see? Well, they would see the religious leaders sitting on these low tables and they would be reclined kind of on their left elbow and their feet would be kind of away from the table where there's the food. Why do that? Well, in, in an oriental uh, type of context, right, they walk everywhere, so their feet are disgusting, right? So it would be rude to come into someone's house that just invited you over and for you to put your feet near the food. And so oftentimes what would happen is they would come in and, uh, and uh, the host would provide a basin of water and someone to clean their feet, right? And so, so whenever you come in, this is the scene that you get. You, you see kind of these religious leaders or teachers kind of sitting around and they're kind of leaning down um, and kind of leaning to the side and their feet are kind of back here and their feet are facing away from the table. So now this is key though. You notice that uh, Simon or the Pharisee, he did not provide any of those things. And so to omit this courtesy of hospitality, right, providing water for your feet, etc., would be to imply that the visitor was of an inferior rank or even someone that they found contempt on. We have these two, by the way, in our day and age, right? What's some of the things that we do whenever somebody comes over, right? We, we welcome them. We, um, we may provide some water as well. We tell them to take a seat. We have these pleasantries or, or these common things that we do. So imagine somebody coming into your home right? And you don't offer them nothing. You just like, you just like let them in and then walk away. Kind of, it'd be like, you'd kind of sit there with a confused look on your face. Like, what are you doing? This is really rude, right? Well, that's kind of similar to what's happening here. This is absolutely vital to recognize that Simon, the host invited Jesus into his home and broke every rule of the common hospitality of the day. He did not receive him with a kiss, which is very common, but don't think about a kiss. <laughs> like, don't be awkward about it. Like, whenever you were a known teacher or something, they would have everybody in the household line up and they would kiss his hand as he approached. And this was just very common. This is what they did. They said, welcome to our home. And they would kiss their hand, everybody in the house. So he didn't kiss his hand. He didn't provide a basin for him to wash his feet. He's not even saying that the host has to wash his feet, but he would at least provide a basin nor did he anoint his head, and all these things are just everyday things. And Jesus would have been very aware that this was a harsh insult to him, but he absorbs it, and he absorbs the hostility behind it. Now, I tell you that because it's in this tension that we are now introduced to the next character, right? One of the Pharisees came, and he said, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And this could be understood as she was a woman who worked in the city, and that language is pretty strong, actually, to call her a sinner like that. The Greek word actually implies that she's probably a prostitute, 
right? And she's, she's someone who works in the city, which means the host, the religious leaders would have known her because it's, you know, think about it. She, that's not in there for no reason. It says, and behold, a woman of the city. It tells us where she's from. She's from the city, the city and where they're meeting. So they know who this is, right? And so um, this woman comes in to the Pharisee's house with these gifts that are an expression of her gratitude and devotion and thanksgiving to Jesus. Notice the text tells us that she arrives prepared to anoint Jesus uh, because it tells us this in verse 37. It says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So she came with an intention. She came prepared for this, but it could be assumed that she did not intend on washing his feet right? Because she didn't have anything. She didn't have a towel. She didn't have any water. She didn't have anything to dry them or to wet them with. But what does she, what does she do? She weeps and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and dries them. But why does she do this? Well, I gave you that background to say she does this because whenever the woman comes in, she knows the context, right? She knows now that what you know, the woman realizes Simon has violated offering Jesus the ordinary amenities of, of general hospitality. And she is shook to the core. She, so this sinful woman, overcome with gratitude of what Jesus is doing in this place, in this city, in this town, in fact, the text tells us later that she has been an exact, like she has been influenced and she is the, um, the product of this forgiveness. And so she comes in with gratitude and she also heard the proclamation of God's freely offered gift of salvation. She was overwhelmed and she was triggered in her deep desire by this grateful response. She's like, what are you doing? Why are you not treating him like he should be treated? This is crazy. And so what is her response in verse 38? Right, we said this in verse 38. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She was so overcome with like anger, but also joy at the salvation he brought and the, the salvation that she allowed her to taste and she began to cry and weep and dry his feet with the hair on her head. And by the way, culturally speaking, again, this also tells us that she was probably um, a prostitute as well. Because in this culture, it was unheard of for a woman to let her hair come down, right? She only does that in the sight of her husband. So that is a very telling like, thing about what she's doing, that she's laying down her hair to dry his feet. Uh, she's taking a huge risk but she's willing to do it. And then what does she do? She kisses his feet and anoints them with, with ointment. This ointment too, this alabaster, as you can imagine, um, she, the women would wear it around their chest. And this, this perfume, you can also like freshen your breath with it, I guess, and then also freshen your body with it. And as a prostitute in the city, she would use this to be desirable. So you see, when, whenever, whenever she's using this, this very expensive, very valuable, she's actually giving up a part of her identity. She's giving up a part of who she used to be. She's saying, this is no longer who I want to be. And so I want to ask just a reflective question. What have you given up for Jesus? Because again, this wasn't just, this wasn't just a rock in her pocket. This was something that was very core to who she was. And she came with it and she said, I'm going to sacrifice the thing that, that, that gave me everything that I needed, at least worldly speaking, and I'm going to give that to Jesus, and in this case, ointment to, to, um, to bless him with this. And this is something that he should have been doing. Notice the sinful prostitute comes into the Pharisee's house to compensate for his failure. The woman gave up a huge part of her identity as the ointment would have been very valuable, as we just said. 
So now the text tells us in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man, right, he's saying this to himself. He didn't say this out loud. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Right, again, coming to ceremonial cleanliness and uncleanliness. Right, if this man was a prophet, now we're getting at revealing his heart. So the, the first scene was God reveals our hearts. Well, we're getting at Simon's heart here because he says, if this man was a prophet. So Jesus is exposing Simon's heart through ultimately revealing Simon's real intent on inviting him to his house. And what was that intent? To test the claim if he's a prophet or not. One commentator put it this way, Simon is affirming that in his opinion, it is all very improper. And Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know who she was and would, of course, refuse any attention from such a woman. Clearly, Simon was completely misjudged what is happening right in front of his eyes. In other words, in Simon's cynical and hostile attempt to prove Jesus is no real prophet, Jesus proves he is a prophet by not only revealing Simon's heart, but also exposing his true intentions in inviting Jesus to his home. So in the very act that he was using to prove against him, Jesus was actually revealing his own heart in that action, which leads me to scene two. Uh, not, only does God, uh, not only does Jesus reveal our hearts, but he also reorients our hearts. Um, so how does Jesus reorient our hearts? Well, the parable tells us, um, the parable tells us about two debtors, which is very short. So stay with me. 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Right? And Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Let's break this down a little bit because that language is kind of confusing. He owed 500 denarii. That's equivalent to about 20 months wages an hour day. So think of it as about $110,000 that he forgave. Debtor number two is about 50 denarii. That's about two months wages. So their debt was about $10,000, right? So as an image, right, uh, something that's similar today, that would be like credit card debt versus four-year student loan debt, right? And I, I put the question to you, right? Who would you love more? Like who would love more? Like if you had the credit card debt and it was just maybe eight to 10,000 or, you know, 80 to $100,000. That's what I want you to feel because that's what he's saying. Neither one of them could pay the debt, so the moneylender canceled both. And Jesus answered a straight, or asked a straightforward question, which of them would love more? Simon, Simon, realizing he's a bit stuck, he answers the one, I suppose, right? You notice that? He says the one, I suppose, for whom canceled the larger debt. Of course, Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. Notice this. Whenever it came to the woman coming into this scene, right, he has judged incorrectly about what's going on in that scene. That this woman is a sinner. That Jesus should know not to touch her. What is he doing? He's defiling himself. But Jesus reorients Simon's heart by taking him out of that human scene with the sinful woman, pointing at her as the, as the sinner and the one who is defiling Jesus. And with the parable, he is completely flipping it upside down in order to expose and reorient Simon's heart to realize that he is the sinner who is defiling the room. Which leads me to how Jesus recreates our heart. Look with me at verse 44. I love this. Then turning toward the woman. So the text tells us that he's looking, he's turning toward the woman, but he says this to Simon. So he's kind of facing the woman, but he's actually talking to Simon, which is interesting. 
Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, right? And I gave the, that context work, so now you know how disrespectful that was. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but has anointed my feet, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He's saying, I entered your house. You invited me and I accepted. I entered your house. I came under your roof. I became your guest. You were responsible for extending me basic hospitality, but you refused. But this woman who you despise, who you despite, who you look down upon in your superiority has so clearly compensated for you failing. After this scathing rebuke, in this context, this is unheard of other than the biblical text. Nobody comes in another person's house and calls them out this disrespectfully, like appearingly, right, from, from his perspective. And he says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She has loved much. The natural question is this. What is first, forgiveness or the outpouring of love? Well, I want you to be a good reader in context. And that parable will tell us that forgiveness came first, right? The, the moneylender forgave the debt. It was the same thing. They needed forgiveness. They both were on the same playing field. They both needed forgiveness, but the woman who was a prostitute, her sins were very much. And she received forgiveness, and so she loved very much. That parable reveals that forgiveness always comes first, and then that, the, the response to receiving God's forgiveness and love is love. That's how we make, love, make sense of love in the universe. In other words, her forgiveness reveals itself in a change of heart in an outpouring of devotion and sacrifice and gratitude, not to earn God's favor, but a, a living out of it because she's experienced and tasted the unmerited grace and favor freely offered in Christ. In this parable, Jesus is actually revealing the one who thinks they're superior is actually one who needs to be pointing at themselves. And the one who comes in humbly, the, the biggest point of this text, I want you to go back and read it later, is the actions of the woman. She doesn't actually say anything. It's all her actions that are being driven by the love and the forgiveness that she has received. She has accepted forgiveness for her great sin. So no matter where you are or where you think you are, whatever you're struggling with, whether it be pride or resentment, or bitterness, or, um, or looking to, uh, to performance, or looking to these accolades that college give us in this world, I want you to ask the question, what, if, what is the point? What is it going to do if you do get it? What is it going to do? Get, create more superiority? Is it going to give you a higher status? Is it going to give you feelings of, I'm better than this person or that person? I want you to ask, what is the natural conclusion, even if you get it? What is the natural conclusion? Is it going to be enough? I think this parable shows and reveals our hearts, reorients us back to Jesus, and then Jesus, by his grace and mercy in the gospel, recreates our hearts. 
He knows that we are going to miss the mark. He knows that we are going to fail. That's why it's a cosmic story. We're the ones who spit in God's face. We need to take ownership of that rebellion, right? And that is in our forefather, Adam. The story doesn't end there. God promised that he would send a seed of a woman that would crush the serpent's head, that there is a true enemy. There is a true enemy. They call him the Satan. He's the adversary. He's the father of lies that tries to get us in these rat races of performance and pleasing others and self-justification and validating our existence instead of looking to Jesus and what he offers us, which is true life. And so the big question is, who is this Jesus anyway? Jesus is the unique agent that God sent to this world to enter into the brokenness, to enter into our pain, to enter into our shame, just like the shame of the prostitute. But you notice the prostitute didn't have any shame coming into a religious leader's influential, influential, high esteemed. He, she came into this home and did for Jesus what he should have done for Jesus. And, he, and, and, and what she did is flip the whole kingdom upside down of who is seen and who is not seen. Why? Because she knew that her sins were forgiven and her sins were much. So the weakness, too, of the Pharisee or the one who, uh, who he doesn't, it says, it says that uh, the one who, um, then those who, sorry, I'm lost. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What that means is he doesn't think he needs God's grace. He doesn't think he needs a lot to forgive. And so he loves little. But the fact of the matter is the story is just as much about him missing the mark. And so I just want to ask you, who are you in the story? Who are you in the story? I'm going to leave it there because that's where the Bible leads it. He does, we don't know what happens to the guy. He just says, he just ends the story. So I want you to think about that. Who are you in the story? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the grace uh, that we receive in your son, Jesus, that he is not just a man and he is not just a prophet. Um, he is so much more. He is the son of God. He is God indwelt in flesh that dwells among us. Lord, that enters into our pain and that sees us, that hears us, that loves us right where we're at and calls us to so much more because our story is so much bigger, that, that Jesus is connecting us to a cosmic redemption back to our Creator, the thing that will ultimately satisfy all of our needs. Lord, would you allow this truth to just meditate on our hearts, uh, especially this evening and maybe in the next day or two? Or would you uh, open up our hearts to see who Jesus truly is as you reveal him in the scripture? Father, be with us now. We, uh, we pray this in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I don't know where this music is. Oh, right here. Okay, perfect. Perfect.